Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. I foresee that um, Korea, Taiwan, the South China Sea, Russia, all of these things, uh, the heat will continue to increase. Mm. And, uh, and so... Once again, we're in very, very dangerous, mm-hmm. dangerous times. That was KJ No, and he rejoins the show to give us an update on all the geopolitical situations in Asia. And you will hear more from KJ. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We are members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, Spotify, your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Okay, so while the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military-industrial congressional complex, and include the media on that and corporations, and who stand up for us, the global us. K.J. Noah is a journalist, political activist, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. And so with that, here is our interview with K.J. Noah. Welcome back, K.J. Thanks so much for coming on again. Uh, I want to get your take on uh, so many things. Xi Jinping's third term as the leader of communist China, uh, and thus the leader of China, and whether even China is communist anymore. I want to get your take on Taiwan, because since last we talked, members of both U.S. House and Senate have j- taken junkets to Taiwan. I also want to get your take on the protests in Korea. But first, that devastating stampede that so far has killed 153 people uh, on Saturday night in Seoul. I guess we need to start there. That's such a disaster. Uh, You're absolutely correct. I mean, it is a complete and total tragedy. Uh, This was 100,000, maybe hundreds of thousands of people crammed into the uh, expat neighborhood of Itaewon. It's a kind of an entertainment and nightlife area that people were celebrating Halloween, which is completely an American holiday. It actually has no precedence or meaning for Koreans. But anyway, a lot of young people, a lot of young party goers went there. The Korean government clearly did several things wrong. The first thing is they did not block off the four lane street which meant that you had hundreds of thousands of people crammed into tiny alleyways. Mm -hmm. The second problem was that one of these alleyways right next to the Hamilton Hotel uh, was steeply inclined, and it was probably about 12 feet in width, and it was running into another group of people who were coming out of the subway. Mm -hmm. And so there you have thousands of people crammed into hundred, a few thousand, if lucky, square feet. And because it was uh, an incline, people fell. Mm. And this often happens with these types of situations. Either there's a blockage or there's stairs or an incline where people fall. And once that falling happens, people just fall on top of each other. And then you are going to get compressive asphyxia. That is, people are crushed. Uh, They cannot breathe. Or if they breathe out, they cannot breathe in anymore. Uh, And then within minutes, we had hundreds of people, uh, we had over 150 people dying, of which 97 were young women, Uh, you know, 
young people in their prime of their lives, teens, uh, 20s, 30s, you know, simply going out for, you know, a night on the town, the first time in a long time that, you know, the mask mandates had been lifted. And the next thing we know, we're looking at this horrific scene, which is almost surreal. You know, you see scores of people on the street dead, and then, uh, you know, scores of people pounding away at their hearts, trying to do CPR, trying to resuscitate them. And in the meantime, you have people running around with blood on their faces. You don't know if it's because of the accident or because of their costume. You see a guy who looks like the pontiff running around and people in nurses' uniforms. I mean, are they costumes? Is this a real thing? The absolute surreality combined with the extraordinary death toll, the tragedy of this, I think lends yet another dimension. This was a well-known safety hazard. And in the previous year, for the same event, they deployed 4,000 police to do crowd control. Uh, and to, you know, just anytime you have that kind of concentration, you do need some kind of crowd control and organization. This year, there were only 150 odd police officers, and they were all assigned to vice squad activities. So essentially, they had let the entire event dissolve into anarchy. And once you have anarchy, once you have that kind of complete hands-off approach, then this kind of human tragedy is preventable, but completely to be expected. So it wasn't like the crowd was unruly and the crowd was was extremely small space. Yes, the the, the crowd was packed into the smallest space and there was no margin Mm. of error. And when one person fell, the Mm. entire group fell. You know, when you have people packed in in those kinds of densities, you're no longer talking about individual humans. You're talking about it's it's like it's like a human wave. You have humans are simply particles in a wave of motion and one yeah. person falls, mm-hmm. everybody falls. And this is exactly what happened. And this is really about priorities. The current president, Yun Sagyal, <clears throat> uh, who's made a series of uh, foreign policy gaps, quite extraordinary, when he ran to become president, he said, that he would create a republic of prosecutors. Now, prosecutors are good for one thing, which is prosecuting people. They are not good for the general affairs of state that is ensuring equity, safety, development, health, uh, security, any of these things. Prosecutors are prosecutors. That's what they're trained to do. But what President Yoon has done is he has packed his administration with prosecutors and judges, including the Minister of Public Safety. And to give you an example of how clueless this crony judge was, is that he had no idea where and how many police officers were dispatched. And he said that it would not have made any difference to dispatch more police officers, which is, I mean, it's stupidity of monumental proportions. But at the same time, he said that because there were mass protests against the Yun Zagyal government, that police were distracted and had to be deployed elsewhere. So he's contradicting himself within the same sentence. But this gives you a sense of the lack of professionalism uh, and the complete chaos that characterizes this quizzling neoliberal, neo-fascist Korean government. So rather than take any responsibility for it, he's blaming protesters in other parts of the city. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's that's one of the the underreported stories is that hardly anybody knows that uh, South Korea is facing a lot of protests. What's what's the cause there? Um, it's a it's it's a whole complex of things, but essentially the key demand of the protesters is that the president resign, that Yun Sogyal resign. Yun Sogyal squeaked in in the tightest election margin in the history of Korean elections. 
he ran on a platform of misogyny and labor bashing and subservience to the United States. And I think the U.S. was very happy if they did not actually have a hand in ensuring his election. But once having been elected, he has been one catastrophe after another. And certainly he's been a walking hot mic. Mm -hmm. uh, I've said in the past that Yoon Seo-gyeol is like a combination of Donald Trump, J. Edgar Hoover, and John Bolton. Uh, oh, good and, Lord. And he's uh, shown himself uh, worthy of that comparison in, in every dimension. So since Yoon Seo-gyeol's uh, election, there have been massive protests. People have been protesting against his neoliberal anti-worker policies. They've been protesting against uh, the kind of venality and corruption. Apparently his wife is embroiled in all kinds of corruption, but they refuse to appoint anybody to investigate it. And then the third bone of contention is what we've just been discussing is that Yun Zagyal has said that he would create a nation of prosecutors and he's been going against his enemies with a vengeance. For example, his political opponent during the elections, Lee Jae-myung, has had his house raided 240 times by the prosecutors. That's uh, two times every three days. He has sent an army of prosecutors into the opposition political party's headquarters. This is something that has never been done since the days of the fascist military dictatorships. Uh, and he has arrested Moon Jae-in's uh, top uh, staff members on the grounds that they obfuscated or covered up something related to North Korean defectors, uh, a fisheries official who was trying to defect to North Korea. And in the mindset of these anti-communist fascist administrations like the Yoon Seo-gyeol government, you know, any person who considers any reasonable cooperation with North Korea is, is a traitor. And so they're going after Moon Jae-in. Ultimately, it boils down to uh, a redux of this paranoid anti-fascism that has always characterized right-wing Korean politics, which is being used to prosecute the previous administration. Mm. And the South Korean public is not standing for it, along with the neoliberal policies and the worker bashing. What we've heard years ago was Moon Jae-in reaching out to North Korea, trying to ending of the Korean War would be a good thing. And now um, with this new president, things have been turned on their head. You know, there are two streams in Korean political history. One is pro-Japanese, anti-communist, pro-US, pro-imperialist, pro-colonialist. And these are the fascist military dictatorships that have largely controlled Korean politics since the end of 1945. South Korea was originally liberated from Japan and the South Korean people created an independent sovereign state that was called the Korean People's Republic. Now the Korean Re People's Republic had tremendous popularity, but there was a problem with it. The problem was that it was an indigenous socialist state that was built out of patriots and uh, anti-colonial independence fighters. When the US came in uh, after World War II, uh, it divided the country into, into two and decided in the South where it had control that it was not going to allow socialism to take root. And therefore it declared the Korean People's Republic illegal. It imprisoned and jailed all of its leaders and then it started to commence this huge project of wiping out this indigenous socialism. It, so what we saw was first the massive arrest, the torture, the, uh, the killings of thousands of labor leaders and independence leaders. And then this crested over into a literally a genocide that then became the Korean War itself. Now, in this process, the U.S. military government in Korea, in order to establish their beach hold of a capitalist quizzling state, what they did was they took all the South Koreans 
who had collaborated with the Japanese, that is the colonial Quisling collaborators, the police, the judges, the prison guards, uh, the torturers, the administrators, it put them all back in power. This is what mm -hmm. South Korea was. In fact, Park mm -hmm. Chang-hee apparently spoke Japanese to his, uh, to his uh, staff members when he was not in public. And so mm -hmm. we have this entire Japanese colonial administration that was continued in the South. And these were characterized by the extraordinary pro-Japanese views, their pro-colonial views, and their rabid anti-communism. Moon Jae-in came out of a radical student movement that was opposed to uh, this collaborator class. And so uh, he was the third of three progressive presidents in South Korea. Kim Dae-jung was the first. Uh, the second was No Mu-hyun. And the third was Moon Jae-in. And they come out of uh, this uh, progressive tradition that was trying to wrest back South Korean autonomy and sovereignty and independence. And they were opposed to U.S. troops on South Korean soil because they understand that that creates South Korea as a neo-colony because the U.S. has operational control over all South Korean troops. Uh, and the third uh, leg of this was rapprochement with North Korea, what Kim Dae-jung called the sunshine policy, essentially to open North Korea through sunshine uh, and, and to reconcile with North Korea and then eventually to move towards some kind of confederated unified state. This is what mm -hmm. Koreans all over the world or Koreans in general for decades, for 70 years, uh, have uh, uh, dreamt for in their hearts. And that has always been obstructed by the United States. And so you have this quizzling imperial colonial collaborator class that is opposed to North Korea, reconciliation with North Korea. And then you have the progressive patriotic sovereignty seeking uh, progressives who want reconciliation and eventual reunification with North Korea. And so Moon Jae-in was considered, Moon Jae-in is being hounded because of this, because uh, the pendulum has shifted to the other side. And speaking of pendulum shifting, now all we all of a sudden, North Korea is launching missiles again. Uh, yes. North Korea is threatening to test a nuclear weapon again. Well, here's the thing that we first have to understand is that anytime we hear or see or talk about anything about North Korea, we have to ask ourselves, first, is it true? And then second, what is missing in this picture or what context is missing? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when we hear about North Korea launching missiles, uh, we're only getting the reaction shot. We don't see what preceded mm -hmm. what happened. And uh, what happened in this specific situation is that the United States, at least uh, for five decades, possibly longer, has been doing these massive military exercises that are designed against North Korea. Most recently, these military exercises have taken on the shape of decapitation of the command and control uh, and the leadership of North Korea. This is what is called Op Plan 5015, and it's rehearsed twice a year in the spring and in the fall against North Korea by the US and South Korean forces. These are the world's largest military exercises on the planet. In 2017, I think they involved 300,000 troops. 300,000, that's twice the size of the D-Day landings, so, mm. uh, or the landings on D-Day. So these are huge exercises. They're extraordinarily belligerent, and they involve strategic weapons. This triggers North Korea's PTSD. Because those of us who know anything about the history know that North Korea was practically wiped out during the Korean War. One out of five North Koreans was genocided through massive carpet bombing, napalming, biblical destruction. And they clawed themselves back out and became a richer and more prosperous country than South Korea until 1978 at which point when the Soviet Union started to fail, North Korea 
no longer was receiving the fossil fuel, the petrochemical fertilizers, and it had difficulty with food security. But prior to that, North Korea was far in advance of South Korea. So inside this context, North Korea has faced existential annihilation since at least 1950. There have been multiple nuclear threats launched, uh, 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 leveled against it from 1958 to 1991, the U.S. had tactical nuclear weapons in South Korea. And after 1991, it simply took out the tactical weapons and recalibrated or re-aimed its strategic weapons against North Korea. And during these 70 years, North Korea has always sued for peace. It has asked the United States for a peace treaty. In 1953, the Korean War ended in an armistice. And the conditions of the armistice was that an enduring peace treaty were to be negotiated amongst the parties. Immediately after signing the armistice, the United States claimed that it would not seek a peace treaty. It essentially, you know, tossed that out the window. And then it uh, continued to bring in new arms and it refused to remove the U.S. military, as was one of the conditions of the armistice. All the Chinese troops left North Korea rapidly. The U.S. still has 28,500 U.S. troops in South Korea and is constantly upgrading and remilitarizing. And so inside this context, North Korea has decided that the only way that it can maintain its existence against a constant and imminent and recurring existential threat is to build a nuclear arsenal. And for many years in the past, from the 1990s onward, they tried to bargain away their nuclear deterrence for uh, an enduring peace treaty and normalization. And they were thwarted at every turn. I'm talking about Clinton's uh, agreed framework. I'm talking about the six-party talks under George Bush and then uh, uh, the Trump administration's uh, overtures to North Korea. Every single one of these overtures has failed. And so North Korea said, we've given up negotiating. Clearly, you are not good faith interlocutors. And we have de facto declared ourselves uh, a, a nuclear state. You know, the horse has left the barn and uh, you're going to have to get used to used to us. And in the meantime, you know, please stop doing these belligerent exercises right on our doorstep. What's the United States motive for this? I just don't get it. You know, when 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 peace could be at hand, when uh, I mean, as we, as we found out with Vietnam, re- reunification is a good thing. What? Um, What's what's the reason for this? There are many reasons for this. I mean, why is the U.S. still messing in Haiti? Why is it still messing in Latin America? Why is it still interfering and sanctioning Cuba? You know, when, you know, the cause of peace and the cause of world development would be served by having good relations with all of this. I mean, some of this is purely leftover Cold War resentment, uh, the vindictiveness that comes from having being forced into uh, a ceasefire. But uh, on a deeper level, it really is uh, a fundamental desire to prevent any counterexample or counter model of development from existing uh, on, in the world. That is to say, North Korea, Cuba, and a few other countries uh, show that there is an alternative model of development. That is, it's a different model of modernization development, which is non-Western and it is non-capitalist, that it exists outside uh, or it will not be subjugated to the capitalist uh, system. And for that, simply for creating the example, uh, they have to be, uh, I think, erased from the map. But the third element of this, and I think this is the one which is we should be paying the most attention to, is the fact that North Korea has always been a stalking horse for China. In 1949, when China stood up, the United States declared who lost China, as if China were theirs. And it has never forgiven China for standing up and becoming powerful and independent. 
And so, for example, during uh, the Korean War was in a certain sense, a, a certain sense, a proxy war between the U.S. and China. Certainly, the Vietnam War was a proxy war to contain China. This is why in 1965, Robert McNamara in the Pentagon Papers that were leaked said that our war of against Vietnam only makes sense if we understand it to be a strategy of containment against China. Uh, and the current uh, escalation and the refusal to de-escalate, but to constantly militarize North Korea also has to do with this uh, need and plan and design to continue to exert pressure, to contain and to roll back China in the Northeast Pacific. Remember, as I said before, South Korea has three and a half million troops, reserve and uh, active duty. And the U.S. gets those troops in a blink the moment it decides that it wants to use them because it has wartime operational control over all of South Korea's troops, facilities, armaments, and capacities. That's the reason why you have to have this constant escalation against North Korea. If that were not, not the case, South Korea would reunify, then it would break free from U.S. control in the region, and it would link up with China through the Belt and Road, and then U.S. Uh, geostrategic design in the Pacific would be completely thwarted. So, well, you mentioned China, and that brings us to uh, Xi Jinping, who has been elected, placed. He's He's got a third term. Um, what's your take on that situation? Where do you see China going from here? Where do you see China and U.S. relations? I, I see the relations going from bad to worse to worse. I see okay. us spiraling uh, into kinetic war. Certainly the most recent salvo, all this provocation over Taiwan, but also literally the full declaration of economic war against China through this, these uh, semiconductor sanctions. Uh, there's no way that you can, you cannot mistake the signs of that. That is a full-scale decoupling. It's an attempt to destroy China's tech capacity uh, in, in, in semiconductors. And by destroying China's tech capacity, they plan to destroy China's economic development. And the idea of destroying China's economic development is the idea is that they want to weaken China to the point where they can uh, literally destroy or dismember it. Now, remember from 1979 until 2012, the US did have an active policy of engagement with China. This was created through you know, the Shanghai communiques and the three communiques. And in all of this, there was the understanding that China was the legitimate uh, government of the Chinese territory and that Taiwan was a province of China and that anything related to Taiwan was a matter among the Chinese people themselves. These are what we understand to be the three communiques and the foundation of US-China relations. All of that has been essentially destroyed. It's gone. Uh, the U.S. no longer believes in the one China policy and, uh, and strategic ambiguity, whatever it was supposed to be, has also gone out the window. The U.S. has passed the <laughs> Taiwan, is passing the Taiwan Policy Act, mm -hmm. which should be called the Taiwan War Act. Literally, it's a plan to not only to send $6.5 billion worth of material uh, into Taiwan, but essentially to turn it into a U.S. forward base, a base of U.S. empire. And remember, Taiwan is 80 miles away from the Chinese mainland. It's the center of this encirclement of what we call the first island chain. And the Taiwan Policy Act does, among other things, it provides for a rotational U.S military presence on Taiwan, turning Taiwan into a base, a U.S. Mm -hmm. base. Uh, it provides for the placement of U.S. officials 
inside the Taiwanese government to direct, you know, or to monitor uh, policy. It provides for immediate and escalatory sanctions against China uh, if there is any attempt on the part of China to, uh, you know, to prevent separatism and separation. So it's very similar to the kind of economic sanctions that were prepared against Russia. An extraordinary, escalatory, provocative act designating Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. You know, there's no way that this cannot be seen as a provocation. But going back to Xi Jinping's third term, the first thing I will point out is there has been a lot of characterization in the Western press that this has somehow turned Xi Jinping into a dictator. Okay, now let's not be silly here. You know, there are uh, nearly 50 uh, other leaders who have had uh, terms longer than Xi Jinping. And I don't recall uh, any of them being called dictators. Angela Merkel has never been called a dictator. Uh, Netanyahu has not been called a dictator, uh, you know, etc. So the fact that somebody has a term longer than 10 years in and of itself, you know, is, is not significant. In fact, China has had five generations of leaders, Mao, uh, and then Deng Xiaoping, uh, and then Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, and now Xi Jinping. And of these five leaders, only Hu Jintao has had uh, a 10-year term. Every single one of them, the rest of them, have had terms much longer. And in the case of Deng, he actually designated his two, pre, uh, his two successes. So you could reasonably argue that Dong had probably the, the longest, you know, uh, you know succession uh, possible. So there's a, a lot of kind of mischaracterization. But what we can see in the 20th Party Congress, and it's an extraordinary document, I invite people to go and read the presentation by Xi Jinping to the 20th Party Congress is first what Xi Jinping does is he gives an accounting of what he and the party have been doing. And it's, it's, a, it's a very honest statement. He's saying, we've done these things, we've pulled all these people out of poverty, we've done all these incredible things, but also here are our shortcomings. Here is where we can do better. Here are the things that we need to work on. So uh, the 20th Party Congress celebrates the 100th or the 101st anniversary of the CPC, uh, and they uh, celebrate their accomplishments, the ending of extreme poverty, and the creation of a moderately prosperous society. They've doubled the life expectancy. They've created extraordinary levels of literacy, you know, children are like three inches taller. The uh, people in China live longer than people in the United States, despite having one-fifth of the GDP. Uh, these are extraordinary accomplishments for any country, but they're very modest. And they say, we've created a moderately prosperous society, and now we have two more thresholds. That is, we are going to create a socialist society that's strong, prosperous, uh, harmonious, sustainable, uh, beautiful even. So this is our next project, and this is what we'll be aspiring for over the next three decades. You know, it just seems like the media in this country just want to focus on personality and, you know, all these supposed uh, sort of paranoid notions they have of whether it's Putin or Xi Jinping and not talk about the substantive issues. Not only the substantive issues, but how deeply uh, reflective and uh, well thought out, you know, this, uh, this project is. You know, if you read uh, the presentation itself, you'll see that there's a large section where they talk about this is how we are thinking and how we need to change our thinking, that we have to have a problem-solving mindset that we have to apply systems theory to the uh, issues that we're facing. And, you know, I challenge anybody to first find anything comparable to that in, for example, the Democratic Party platform. 
you know, these are very, very important elements to note. And it's certainly not this, you know, propaganda, uh, you know, theater that the West has characterized it as. The other thing that they emphasized about the third party Congress is Hu Jintao left uh, the, the, the Congress uh, because it seems like he was under some kind of distress. And once again, uh, the New York Times and the mainstream media made it seem like he was being purged. You know, he was being forced out uh, of his seat and dragged away and disappeared. Well, if you focus and remove all context, then you can make anything seem disturbing and paranoid. But if you look at Hu Jintao when he came into the Cong Congress Hall, he was led in. He was constantly prompted. He seemed disoriented. He needed prompting even to find his seat and to sit down. And so clearly, you know, he's an elderly gentleman with signs of dementia. And when he left, he was under some distress. And so he received the same kind of prompting and he was led away and, you know, taken to a place where he could rest and be in a better condition. And all of this has been kind of where they've tried to make it seem like there's something monstrous going on. And so that gives us a sense of how the propaganda is playing out in the mainstream media. What do you think the future is between China, Taiwan, and the U.S.? And give me your take on the what, what was your reaction when you saw Pelosi and these other Congress people and senators going over to Taiwan and basically poking China? I thought that this is a very, very foolish act. And, um, you know, this will not end well. You know, the U.S. has agreed that Taiwan is a province of China. They agreed to that. They understand that any issues between the two parties are something to be resolved among the Chinese themselves. They acknowledge that there is only one China and that the PRC is the legitimate government of China. And so by sending your third highest official and the second in the succession uh, to uh, China, you're sending an unmistakable message that you no longer respect your diplomatic agreements with uh, China, that you're violating the UN uh, you know, agreements, you're violating, you're going against the fact that the almost the entire world and the UN itself recognize it that there is only one China. Mm -hmm. And by de facto granting a kind of independence or sovereignty by sending high-level diplomats, you're thumbing your nose at the Chinese and you're trying to see how far you can get away with it. Now, Nancy Pelosi has a long history of anti-China stunts and action. And she was part of the original, what are called the blue team in the 1990s. These people, uh, eventually combined with the neocons. Uh, and they were extraordinarily belligerent against the PRC when uh, Clinton initially started to have this large-scale engagement with China. Now, we know in retrospect that that engagement with China was actually a form of soft regime change. The hope was that by engaging with China, China would, quote unquote, liberalize and join, you know, the U.S. system. Essentially, it was a plan for regime change, not unlike what the United States did to Russia. China refused to go along with these schemes, and it has built its country on its own terms without becoming uh, a subordinate cog to the U.S. system of global extraction. Every time it has done some kind of exchange, it has still managed to maintain and develop itself on its own terms. The U.S. finds that intolerable because that was the condition of engagement. And so what we see in China is we can see China as moving through several distinct phases. The first phase was with, with Mao which was really about challenging imperialism and uh, colonialism and feudalism. The second phase 
After that was Deng Xiaoping, which was really about creating the productive forces, that in order to have a socialist society, you needed to develop the productive forces. And one of the ways to do this is a kind of pragmatic uh, market socialism, what Deng said, uh, black cat, white cat, who cares as long as it catches mice, right? <laughs> and so this idea was that you were going to move slowly, have some reform and opening up and use that to develop the productive forces. And then after Deng, his successor, whom actually Deng appointed, was Jiang Zemin. And Jiang Zemin brought in this idea of uh, a big tent. Uh, and he, he referred to it as scientific socialism, but essentially it was creating a big tent and that we don't focus on uh, class enemies but we include everybody and we all work together and we develop. And Hu Jintao was a continuation of this approach. But throughout this process, as the uh, productive forces were de being developed, and Deng Xiaoping warned about this, he says that this is going to result in a system where some people get richer faster than other people. And Deng was agnostic about this. He says, we're going to have to tolerate this, you know, probably for a, a century, if not longer. Mm. And when uh, Xi Jinping was elected, he changed that mindset. And he said, now we have this development, but it's time for this development to become more equitable. We have to spread the wealth around. And so the catchphrase that started to come out under under Xi Jinping was harmonious development, mm. that we want development that lifts up all boats, that everybody benefits from this, that it's sustainable development. And the other piece of this was that we want to get rid of the extreme pollution that's been happening when you have this, you know, hell-bent for development process. And so you see the environmental conditions improving rapidly under Xi Jinping. And then the third piece is that you see movement against corruption because, you know, there were people who were becoming wealthy, uh, some cadres were benefiting from this, and you started to see billionaires in China. And so the idea was that we need to harmonize our development. And this is what <clears throat> Xi Jinping has been doing. And this is why he has been so deeply and fundamentally criticized by the West, because uh, from Deng to Jiang to Hu Jintao, there was always this, you know, inkling that somehow these were leaders who could be bought out and they could be encouraged to mm -hmm. go full road capitalism. Uh, and that if not, then you could, you know, kind of bribe the top leadership into, into kind of turning into a kleptocratic comprador class with the capitalist ruling imperial elite. Uh, Xi Jinping has put paid to that, and that is why he's being uh, labeled as an autocrat. When we say autocrat or autocratic, essentially that means somebody who is not subservient to U.S. geopolitical hegemonic designs. You wouldn't characterize, and all these characterizations, I don't even know if they're, if they're even productive or useful, but um, the amount of development, you wouldn't characterize this as communism. Um, it's not, well, you know, we have to, I think, distinguish between communism and socialism, as well as understand Maoism and other variations of Chinese socialism. I think there's a very, sometimes an oversimplified notion uh, in the West and in certain left circles that it's either black or white, you're either socialist or you're not. Uh, there's no developmental process involved that somehow you might have elements of a previous uh, system existing inside uh, a current system that is aspiring towards a future system. But in China's situation, what they've said clearly is that we are aspiring to socialism, that they have a system which is Marxist-Leninist that believes in the leadership of the party, and that is building its way towards socialism. And it hopes to do that in some form 
by uh, 2035, and then to complete that process by 2049. So these are future projects. So yes, we can say that China is a proto-socialist state. It is not there yet. So if you want to criticize China for not being socialist as, you know, your utopian or, you know, uh, council communists would have it, well, you can do that. But the understanding is that this is a dialectical process and that it takes time. And first you build up the productive forces and then you're going to have elements of contradiction within that society that slowly resolve and you resolve these contradictions over time. So China is moving towards socialism. It's not socialist yet, but it has the aspirations uh, of being of, of becoming so as it is led by uh, the party. We got to talk a little bit about um, your take on the other elephant, uh, which is Ukraine and especially China and the China-Russia relations. How are relations between China and Russia? Well, I think they are uh, good and they're improving. And they've been on an improving trajectory since the 2000s. If you recall, the break between China and the Soviet Union, you know, happened towards the end of the 60s. They eventually, you know, had a border skirmish. They actually had a war between each other. And then you had this full-scale Sino-Soviet bloc, which the United States used against the Soviet Union, as, as well as against China, in order to you know, gain advantage in the Vietnam War, and then also to undermine the Soviet Union. So uh, for many decades, there was a Sino-Soviet split, uh, which the U.S. leveraged skillfully for geopolitical advantage. Uh, and Henry Kissinger said, you know, you have to keep these two countries apart, right? And this generation of neocons has done exactly the opposite. It's, it has driven them together. It has driven China and Russia together. China and Russia constitute the centrality of the Eurasian landmass. And anybody who knows anything about geopolitics understands that, as Alfred McKinder said, uh, you know, the country that controls the center of the Eurasian landmass controls the heartland, controls the world island, controls the destiny of the planet. So the U.S. has driven the two countries together. You know, they signed agreements on strategic uh, and essentially they have said that there is no limit to their uh, amity and collaboration. Now, does that mean that China approves of uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine? Despite the fact it was provoked, I think the Chinese would have taken a much, much more cautious line. I think they don't like kinetic engagement. They see kinetic engagement really as the, the worst of all things. It's really the last. It's as uh, Sun Tzu said, he said, you, the best way is to win without engaging in battle, without taking castles, right? Mm -hmm. Chinese believe in soft power and economic engagement as a way of building allies and creating harmonious development. They don't want kinetic war. And they've shown that since 1979, they've not uh, gone to war with any country. That's kind of extraordinary for any country, you know. Uh, no great power has come into, into such... Uh, prominence without going toward China is sui generis uh, in that regard. And now with the new uh, national defense documents and the <clears throat> Biden nuclear posture review, he just seems to be ratcheting up tension. And uh, you wonder, you know, they're talking about so many different scenarios where they would consider nuclear weapons. I mean, this is so reckless. It is so <clears throat> reckless. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. nuclear posture uh, review has always been very, very belligerent since at least uh, the early 2000s. It has envisaged uh, preemptive strikes uh, and the use of nuclear war uh, for any strategic loss, not necessarily as a deterrent against nuclear attacks, but for simply any strategic disadvantage 
they have contemplated uh, nuclear attacks or preemptive nuclear attacks. And now all of this has simply just become more blatant and more normalized mm. uh, and more in your face. And so, you know, the gloves have come off and the mask has come off in the NDS and the NSS and the mm. Nuclear Posture Review. And I think this is extraordinarily dangerous because it normalizes what was previously unthinkable. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, you know, Rand wrote this document called Thinking About the Unthinkable, which was that nuclear war, we have to find a way to deter it and, uh, and if possible, win it. But it was still understood that this is in the realm of the unimaginable, the unthinkable. <laughs> and now uh, the current administration is tossing it out as if this were as the French say, a bagatelle, you know, a trifle, you know, that, you know, here's, we have all these tools and, you know, why not use tactical or even strategic weapons? I think that it's so misguided and so monumentally foolish. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, why, why has the insanity reached this level? You know, my answer to that is, you know, there is a group of the ruling imperial elite, and I think they would rather see the end of the planet than the end of their supremacy mm. and privilege. And I think that is very, very dangerous. And I think that's why all of us, including those of us at BFP, mm. have to strive so hard, extraordinarily hard. This is a critical moment, you know, to talk some sense into our own government and to prevent this escalation, to really... Uh, make us focus on peace. Maybe that will help to mo mobilize a peace movement that's been just not able to come together so far. I know the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists' response to the Nuclear Posture Review described it as terrifying, <laughs> and, and they haven't even been that reliable lately. In terms of well, the BAS has been taken over by uh, yeah. you know neocons, and right. but but if they think it's uh, you know, terrifying, then, then all of us, uh, you know, <laughs> should, should understand that. Yeah. The yeah. latter calling for negotiations from the progressive Democrats, and it gets vilified and gets yeah. withdrawn. I think the Democrats are in big trouble there because they're, you know, they're unified for a policy that uh, is extremely unpopular and Republicans are already trying to take advantage of that. Yes. Well, I mean, the Democrats certainly are the party of war. I mean, yeah. they are the, the hawks yeah. and the uh, Republicans are opportunists. So we don't know to what extent how sincere their opposition yeah. to the war is. But to be honest, if there is some opposition, I'll take it because that is important, because I think the future of the planet is important. And for those who refuse dialogue who say that we cannot negotiate i mean that's absurd the, eventually you have to negotiate uh, and when you refuse any negotiation when you close off the avenues of dialogue then essentially you've you've set yourself up for uh, kinetic escalation and you're essentially just you know drinking the kool-aid i mean this mm. is no long, you're no longer rational. This is a doctrine of faith. We can't do a, a deal with the devil, right? Well, anytime you have that kind of polarized thinking, uh, then nothing good can come of it. The only thing you can hope for uh, is the apocalypse and the rapture and, cr and, and cross your fingers. But mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not what I or I hope most rational people choose to believe in. KJ, we've kept you for an hour, it looks like. Every time every time we talk, I'm thinking, oh, good Lord, we could keep him on for two, mm -hmm. three hours. Mm -hmm. I hope you'll be willing to come on with us again in six months. I'm not sure we can wait that long, Jim. And, any predictions? <laughs> you know, I think predictions are always dangerous, but I see this going in a very, very dangerous direction. I see more escalation around North Korea. I see more escalation around Taiwan Island. Uh, I see that uh, uh, I think that I think the writing is on the wall around the Ukraine, but clearly the neocons don't want to, uh, you know, they're no longer in touch with reality. They don't want to accept reality.
And this is why they say they don't want negotiation and certainly not a negotiated peace. So these are all very, very dangerous trend lines. Uh, I foresee that Korea, Taiwan, the South China Sea, Russia, all of these things, uh, the heat will continue to increase. Mm. And once again, we're in very, very dangerous times. And uh, more than anything, you know, once again, com coming back to Antonio Gramsci, you know, we have to be pessimists of the intellect and optimists of the will. That is to say, we have to believe that we can make a difference and that everything that we do and say and transmit and share does make a difference. Because at this point, I believe that everything counts. Uh, every action that we do, every interaction that we do counts. And we have to, because the stakes are so high, you know, the consequences are so dire. And the key thing, which I thank you, uh, Jim and Harvey for doing is, uh, you know, this indispensable service of sharing the truth, getting the truth out there and inciting people to think critically and rationally about where we are and what we need to do. Well, that we really appreciate that. And we really appreciate, appreciate you and, um, and coming on and being so willing to give us your wisdom and your insights. And um, I just got one more, one more question. We always end with a song. <laughs> Do you have a song? <laughs> I may have done this. I may have asked for this uh, before, but I really love Gil Scott Heron's work for peace. Got it. Okay. So if you want to find out more about all the work that KJ No is doing, it's easy. Just type in the letters KJ and then No, N-O-H, into whatever search engine you use. Okay. Look them up. It's worth it. And with that, here's Gil Scott Heron. Heard you looking for peace. Peace ain't gonna be easy. Heard you looking for peace. Peace ain't gonna be easy. Got folks working for war. Start a little trouble, make a whole lot of money with a war. Start a little trouble, make a whole lot of problems, have a war. Turn this planet into east and west with a war. I don't want to hurt nobody here. I believe in peace. I don't want to hurt nobody here. Everybody you know, gotta go to work. Tell everybody you know.
somebody go to work 